Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today from Chicago to discuss all kinds of stuff. Devin, what have you been up to, man? Oh, I've been up to this and that. I've been editing weddings. I've been uh, building servers, actually. Uh, while I've been uh, worried about my backups and in case uh, there's a crater or something happens at this location, I've been putting together a small 1U rack mount uh, storage server uh, that I have an opportunity to put up for free at a so storage facility so that I can do off-site backups overnight uh, to make sure I don't lose any of that precious footage. Nice. So you're building it at home and then taking it over to someone else's data center? Yeah. yeah. So learning Linux, all that stuff, all that nonsense i'm going through all that as well as like virtualizing it and vmware and all that stuff oh wow man that's uh, a little more advanced than uh, my forte <laughs> on my end you can see that i am in an empty room uh the movers have come through and taken everything i am down to the camera bags behind me a bit of luggage and this tupperware container full of my clothing so it's <laughs> almost time to move to vancouver and uh yeah and then on top of that, it's about time. sad news, the GS60 MSI laptop that I was really excited about bit the dust. And Ooh. instead of using that as my travel computer as I make this transition, I am now forced to use a full-size, full-fledged desktop as my travel computer until I get an address <laughs> and can ship that in for repair. So... Thanks, MSI, for that one. Uh, how, did it, how did it bite the dust? What, what happened with it? So the 128-gig SSD that comes standard with it, I upgraded two other SSDs into the unit, and the 120-gig SSD bit the dust. Uh, it started mm. exhibiting heavy errors and corrupting windows, and then it just went TU about two days ago. So... That is the end of that, Jeez. and um, wow. unfortunately, you can only load the operating system onto the first M.2 slot for whatever reason, and also because I took out the other drive and didn't make a backup of Windows 8, I am my own worst enemy in this regard. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you ruined all of it. Yeah, so, and then it doesn't have a disk drive, <laughs> and so, I mean, I guess I mm -hmm. could go find my own OS and um, tear it apart again, but I figure I better just send it in since this is probably warranty work. On the bright side, MSI does True. offer a, what, three-year warranty, I believe? So I am good to yeah. go, but unfortunately I don't have a, an address in my new location yet, so I'll be in temporary housing, which is i.e. motel rooms, and how do you ship something back from repair? Right. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so that'll Just be perfect timing. Week. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, time for the news. Time for the news. First up, I've got on the news here, and I actually talked about this last podcast, but I wanted to kind of follow up on it. The Amazon Cloud subscription service, uh, this I mentioned last cast is $12 a year for unlimited photo uploads, and I just started playing around with it this week to see kind of what it's all about. Turns out it's pretty smooth, it's easy to operate, a drag-and-drop sort of setup, and they are paying attention to what types of files you upload. So if you have a data cap for anything besides photos, it will start to tell you that you're using up almost all of your limited 5 gig. Um, I had some videos mm -hmm. mixed in with photos when I was backing up all my photo collection. It is kind of slow, and you are limited to your upload speeds. In three days, I was able to get about 14 gigs uploaded 
of 896 gigs worth of raw photos in my collection. So, <laughs> well, that you know what, but that's still uh, that's still good. I mean, if you're a photographer and you want to upload raw, you know they've got bigger packages that are available for you. I think the main thing that's lacking with uh, this uh, unlimited photos plan is, um, as far as I've seen, it doesn't look like a very comfortable experience to get them back. But still, like I was saying earlier, off-site backup uh, is just crucially important at the exact worst time when you need it most. Uh, you'll be so glad that you actually have a backup that isn't physically located in your house or um, wherever you're working. Now, I'm going through this here, and I hopefully I can share the screen because I've got this open. Let me see if I can do that now. But uh, basically what you get out of this is a little window that looks like this. So what you do here is any folders you have, you drag over to this little interface and upload your photos. It'll start uploading, give you a data calculation and everything else, and then kind of tell you how much you have up in the cloud already. To access your stuff, you can easily just click on this. It brings up a web interface, which isn't too bad. And it also has this option here where it just says download. So everything that you want out of the Amazon cloud, you just click that button and it downloads the entire bit. Otherwise, you have this kind of sort of old school prototype looking interface to use <laughs> and get through your images and whatnot. So it's not the most advanced. Um, it's definitely not up to par with Google Drive yet, but I already pay for a prime service. So I guess that's another option. It is interesting that for an extra $65 a year, Amazon's also offering up a full set of unlimited storage with this sort of system here. So something to think about if you're in the market for a storage solution. Uh, as Devin said, online backup or your own servers is probably something you have a little bit better control over. Or uh, any of the other ones are a little bit more yeah. advanced. You know, there's... there's crash plan there's backblaze and all that kind of stuff um i've been doing a bit of backblaze myself uh because i got a decent offer on it uh but also too i think this is really just amazon taking their uh, amazon cloud backup service which was really complicated for end users their glacier storage service and stuff like that and presenting it in a way where the average consumer especially if you're already a prime member can easily upload their own stuff uh, in an easy-to-use interface for the most part. And even though it may not be like Dropbox, if you're trying to share it with people, this is built as a backup, not as a sharing current working directory kind of platform. Um, but I'm glad to see that they still have this, you know, close to the same prices they're having with Glacier. Of course, um, Glacier backups also charged you to reacquire oh, really? uh, your photos and stuff like that. Yeah. It, it was something like, uh, I, f I forget, because it was sent on a gigabyte to upload it, and then when you wanted it back, uh, depending on how much you wanted, uh, they charged you on retrieval. So it's one of those where this time, uh, for this cut of their service, it looks like they aren't going to charge you for retrieval, which is nice, uh, but they're definitely not trying to build a actual hosting location. I'm sure if you said you wanted to download their drive, it would say, hey, give us uh, you know, a few hours to package it for you because it ha they'd have to pull it out of long-term storage. Now, have you used their audio storage? You know, because they have the, um, the basically it's like it, it's included with the streaming package where you upload a bunch of your MP3s and your audio collection, and then it allows you to stream from any device. Google has the same thing, but I haven't tested mm -hmm. the Amazon version. Have you messed around with that at all? I haven't I haven't touched the Amazon version either. I've been very happy with the uh, the Google service uh, just because their player and their system works so well. Though I can definitely imagine if you're uh, 
already buying music from Amazon Prime, uh, that could be a way to go. But as far as I've heard, their music player on mobile devices has been lackluster at best. I think it's a really good experience. We have like a Fire tablet or a Fire phone, but we both know how those have kind of turned out. So I don't think there's a lot of people who are using a Prime music. Uh, but Amazon's still throwing money at it, and it's still trying to grow, and they're trying to take on iTunes. And I applaud that. Anyone who's trying to, you know, uh, stir up, uh, you know, the industry leaders a bit. Now, speaking of problems with things, uh, Arkansas passed <laughs> the SB 79 uh, Act, which is the Personal Rights Protection Act. Uh, this would require photographers to get written permission from strangers in order to feature their likeness in a photograph, which means basically no more street photography or anything like that, or at least in the natural sense. What do you think about this? This is pretty crazy, going pretty extreme on the privacy protection stuff. It It is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like on um, kind of a federal level, it's always been, uh, you know, general public places and definitely uh, public officers or what have you working in a public place. You have full permission to take photos and do whatever you want with those photos, and uh, you don't need uh, permission at all to do any of that kind of stuff. And so uh, with this kind of situation here, I, does this also start to bleed into, hey, you need written consent from a police officer to take their photos? I mean, um, that's a good question. It, yeah, because it kind of starts, we start talking about that part, right? With the, the legality of, we already know that a lot of police officers uh, don't like it. Um, Generally speaking, just all the videos and stuff, but you always see the worst of the worst on the internet. But here, it's it's. Are they doing this because of police officers putting pressure on it, where they don't want to be photographed while they're doing stuff? I don't mean to spin this into a political debate, but uh, I wonder if that's part of the reasoning behind it. Because I don't see a whole lot of people rising to arms because some guy took a photo of them in the street and then had it, you know, featured somewhere. Because uh, there's uh, while they're saying protection of privacy. Uh, a lot of the times the counter case to this would be um, when you're in public, there is some privacy that you are, uh, I don't know the legal term for it, but you're, you're no longer private if you're in a public space. There's a certain amount. You know, if you're somebody does something that tries to capture you unlawfully, like, you know, upskirt or something like that, like they do in Japan, then that kind of stuff definitely is illegal. But if you're walking down the street, somebody's, you know, using an 80 millimeter lens and takes a picture of you, that's not considered illegal because you're not invading their privacy and they're giving up the privacy of their likeness by being in public. So this kind of seems to go against all that. And it's interesting that it passed and I haven't seen any news about it. And I feel like this is more having to do with police officers photographing them in public than I can't imagine there's that many people who have complained about you know, being photographed in public. I mean, have you ever complained about, or do you know anyone who's like, somebody took a picture of me in public and oh, yeah, yeah. posted Actually, it online? Um, and... pa paparazzis are a big well, problem yeah. in many areas. I mean, obviously, they're not chasing me yeah. around, but in uh, California <laughs> and so on, you know, you do have an issue where True. B and, and A-level celebrities are followed around onto the beach on family vacations. Uh, there was that incident with um, somebody's kid, I believe, in New York last year, where they the photographer accidentally knocked his child out into the street he didn't get hurt but i mean um oh yeah the celebrity like blew up and started yelling at him and stuff and you know that could have turned into something fairly dangerous but as far as uh your rights go as a photographer an interesting site to check out uh aclu basically everybody knows who they are but uh they have a know your rights for photography uh section on the mm -hmm. acl website 
and it goes through everything that you're allowed to do. Uh, the weird thing about this Arkansas bill is that it, it passed, but it is in direct um, comp or not competition, but uh, it's it doesn't fall in line with the federal law that gives you the right to take a picture of anything in public space as long as you are lawfully there, which means, like you mm -hmm. said, no upskirts. You're not doing anything that's illegal while you're taking the photos as long as you're in public space. If you're on private property, there's rules that go with that. Uh, the property owners can impose certain rules and regulations on you. And then you're allowed to take uh, uh, pictures of police officers in, in action as long as you're not interfering with the action or uh, causing any sort of rights issues with the people. So check that Absolutely. out. Read through those. I wonder how this is going to go when they finally get it out and into practice because I don't know if it's against or for police officers necessarily, but it definitely does not really coincide with the federal laws. And I might be wrong. I, and I, I, you know, we have the marijuana laws right now. So um, I live yeah. very close to Colorado and no one from the federal government has come in to crack down on them yet. And that definitely goes against right. federal laws. So who knows what's going to happen with this? This could be lawsuit haven, or it could be some other erosion of uh, state versus federal rights. Um, and it could possibly be an overreaction to uh, aerial drones. Oh, that's I mean, true, too. Part of it is that aerial drones can pretty easily trespass where they're not allowed. They can get into people's backyards and all over the place. And you'd think the same rules would apply. Well, if your photography equipment is trespassing, that applies to you because you're in operation of that photography well, equipment. But are you trespassing if you're in the 500-foot range of airspace <laughs> that is allowed for all you know R RC vehicles mm -hmm. to, to transport and move around in? That, that becomes really tricky, too. Like, if I'm flying over a building... And I have a camera mm -hmm. attached to my drone, and I am taking pictures of somebody sunbathing in their backyard. My drone right. is in the right spot, and they are within public view of, you know, my flying mm -hmm. vehicle. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't I know. Think, but. I think in most cases, I think in most cases that would not be okay because uh, most people in their backyards, especially with something like it's fenced. Uh, I think that would fall under uh, inherent uh, feeling of privacy and security, inherent uh, privacy, meaning that they feel like they should be secure in that space. So then anything against their privacy would just be treated as uh, trespassing or invasion of privacy. I think in most cases is how they take it. But it's very clear that uh, the law system is not ready for air the mass of aerial drones that have been coming out um, as well as cracking down on photography photography has been around for a long time. I'm wondering what is pressuring them to try to change these laws. What problem are they trying to fix with it? Other than, you know, politically the problems have been creeping up with uh, videotaping and taking pictures of police officers in public. Now, this isn't really a political podcast and uh, you can see those of no, you watching a, a dog has joined me uh, because there's no furniture in my house and he's rather bored with not comforting areas. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'd be interested to hear from others who might know a little bit more about this. If you live in Arkansas and you are kind of dealing with this mess, uh, let us know. Send us a tweet, uh, DSLR Film Noob. You can find me on Twitter, and I'd love to hear from you to find out kind of how this is going to affect you. Moving on to things that will affect you and make your life easier as opposed <laughs> to harder. Uh, look out, there's new SSD technology. 
And by new, I mean everybody else is jumping on the Samsung bandwagon. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, 3D NAND was released by Samsung in their enterprise drives under the label VNAND a few years, not a few years ago, last year actually. And VNAND is basically a way of stacking the gates on top of themselves so that you can create more density inside of your IC. Uh, now Intel and Toshiba are jumping in on the bandwagon. And they're suspecting that they can get IC packages for MLC, which is multi-layer chips, into a 256-gig capacity and the triple-level cells into a 380-gig capacity. You can fit a number of these chips onto an M.2 card or a 2.5-gig or a 2.5-millimeter SSD. So that gives you up to 10 terabytes of space on a 25 or 3.5 SSD form factor, or up to 3.5 terabytes on a uh, M.2 SSD. <laughs> this is getting a little complicated so here. So many acronyms. Yeah, yeah. and so, so many, many acronyms. Doesn't <laughs> this also mean, too, that uh, the price for this storage is going to drop uh, quite a bit? I mean, obviously, when the new this new technology comes out, the previous SSD uh, models that are just uh, 2D, NAND drives, they're obviously going to drop in price uh, because these bigger ones are going to come out. But I feel like, too, because of the structure and the way that the gates are made, uh, while they obviously won't be the same price, I feel like you're talking about putting three and a half terabytes on those little M2 chips. Um, that's probably going to be way cheaper than, you know, so far buying a, a terabyte on one of those M2 chips. The M2 chip is very large. And I imagine from a manufacturing standpoint, it takes a lot from it. So. I'm very excited, though, because as I kind of convert um, my rate over to SSDs, I'm very excited to see either prices drop or at least larger SSDs to make uh, some raids. Well, we could run into a few problems with these new SSDs. First of all, yield. Uh, if they're able to get good enough yield out of a single wafer, then you're right, the prices will drop. Uh, the prices will definitely drop on the older units because I think even if they have middle of the line, which is 51% yield or 60% yield on a wafer, they'll be able to create these at about the same price as the current round of SSD mm -hmm. chips. So that's a good thing. Uh, the 10 terabyte and the 3.2 terabyte respectively for the thinner form factor, we're probably not going to see that anytime in the near future. Uh, the current round, they're talking more in the range of 48 and 32 gig uh, uh, tr uh, 3D NAND gates. So yeah, those are like the but highest are... deals that they're able to achieve yes. eventually. So, uh, you know, like it's it's kind of everything I read about this when I was first looking into it, when Samsung came out with VNAND originally, which is just vertical NAND instead of 3D NAND. You can call it whatever you want. But they were like, oh, man, we're going to have huge giant capacities and it's going to start coming out this year. And OK, so then <laughs> Samsung releases like one one terabyte drive and one two terabyte drive. And those drives came out for enterprise use only. And they're very expensive. They're out of the price of normal consumer models. Mm -hmm. And then when they announce these, they're like up to 10 terabytes. Well, that's great. <laughs> but we're not going to see 10 terabytes anytime in this year, next year, maybe like three years out once they really get this process node down to where it can mm -hmm. handle it. And it also depends on how big of a uh, nanometer laser they're able to use on these because I think right now they're still running at 22 nanometers and they're hoping to get to 14 nanometers, which would be part of the process of increasing the density of storage on each of these chips. 
I don't know if they're going to hit that. And right now, who do we have? We have uh, Global Foundry, TMC, mm-hmm. and we have Samsung as producers. Well, Samsung has been able to do it, but they're doing it at 22 nanometers. Uh, TMC and Global Foundry, I think they're they're still working in the uh, 22 and 32 nanometer range. They haven't gotten down to the 14 uh, nanometer process. So Intel is really the only one that's been hitting the market at 14 nanometers. Um, this is getting kind of like way too tech heavy here. <laughs> but uh, no, no, but. What it, I think for the average person, what it does mean is that uh, this is the next generation. This is the next giant leap in capacity. Uh, we've already, like, really, we're, we got fast drives. SSDs, especially if you raid them up, we got fast drives. Uh, what we're still lacking is storage. Because even if you go mechanical, let's say you want storage and you don't want speed, you know the largest full-size drive you're going to get is going to be around 6 terabytes. And that basically has to be done by using thinner platters and fueling them with helium instead of air and all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you're looking for a smaller laptop-sized drives, your, your 2.5s, uh, the largest you're going to get there is maybe 3 terabytes, and that'll cost you a ton of money. And that's the physical limitation of having uh, magnetic platters stacked on top of each other and that's as that's as much as we can physically do in a cost versus reward situation so this shows that hey these ssds who used to be smaller but faster they're also going to start to be faster and bigger than what we can do mechanically and i think it really puts the nail in the coffin for mechanical drives I don't know, man. Every time we say the this is the end of mechanical <laughs> drives, uh, platter density goes up exponentially. I mean, uh, like mm-hmm. two years ago or three years ago, they were at 500 gig per platter, and there people were like, "Oh, this True. is this is as far as they're ever going to get." Then they hit 750. <laughs> now they're at a terabyte, and I think they're talking about possibly figuring out a way. Uh, they call it shingling, where they write on the drive but then they write halfway over the previous write in order to double the capacity. So each read channel is half the size that it would normally be. <laughs> and then they can get the drive up to like 1.5 or two terabytes. So, you know, mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe this will keep up with the technology that the SSD uh, uh, chips keep coming out with. And we'll see platters in the like 10 terabyte range too, or they'll have like well, six yeah, discs and, like and- stacked in a, you know what I mean? Like a pancake. <laughs> They still make, and you're right, they still make uh, magnetic tape drives for oh, long-term yeah. backup. Those, and those are still, are still super cost-effective. They are. Oh, man. Did I just lose yep, video? losing your video. Yep. Oh, wow. It flickered a little bit, and then I was like, no, DJ. Oh, no. Oh, well. Okay. Well, for oh, those well. of you uh, watching, <laughs> you'll just have to deal with the black uh, blackness when I'm talking. Uh, moving on down the line here. Oh, goodness. Uh, we've got uh, the... Asus Rogue Gaming Laptop. This uh, You yeah. posted this, so tell me a little bit more yeah, about this guy. Yeah, I went ahead and posted. I'll take the lead on this. That's all right. Um, so nothing really new here in terms of specs, especially compared to the MSI that you bought. Uh, but what is interesting, uh, just like the MSI you bought, you know, they kind of start at 1400 and go all the way up a little past two grand, depending on uh, how much RAM do you want, mm-hmm. what's the, uh, you know, uh, graphics card you want and everything else. But... Unlike the MSI, uh, this Asus gaming laptop will have Thunderbolt in it, as well as HDMI that fully supports 4K. Um, and they also say it supports three outputs. I don't think it'll support three 4K outputs out of that DisplayPort and Thunderbolt port. But uh, if you're looking for a mobile workstation, uh, this is something to seriously consider versus the MSI because it goes for the same price. But having that Thunderbolt port, uh, if you're already you have Thunderbolt you know, drives or whatever, for whatever reason, Thunderbolt raids or what have you, um, as well as the ability to convert it to different display formats. Uh, This is definitely just something to consider. Uh, 
like I said, nothing revolutionary except for the f- fact that for the price, you can get a Thunderbolt port, and that's an, that's through their entire line, as well as having proper 4K uh, HDMI output, which, while not specifically listed, looking at the graphic card and everything else capabilities, you should be able to get uh, 60 frames a second out of that 4K HDMI display, because I believe it's the new HDMI standard. So as well as doing triple monitors if, uh, you know, you want to do your mobile editing, and I guess you're bringing monitors with you when you mobile edit. But um, Now, will you be able to use Thunderbolt think, on this guy? I think it's a great price. Will you be able to use Thunderbolt on this guy as a method for uh, external monitors as well as the HDMI port and the uh, uh, display port outputs? Yeah, I think that's how you end up getting three display uh, monitors out of it, is by using both Thunderbolt, HDMI, and the display ports on it. Um because uh, the Thunderbolt will work as normal Thunderbolt. It's it's a proper Intel Thunderbolt. So it's not, you know, emulated. Uh, it's right there on the PCI Express port, and it's talking to the Intel processor. So uh, that's what it looks like to me. That's how they're going to do it. Not that I've handled one or, you know, and I don't have the manual for it right in front of me, but it's just one of those that uh, this guy was in the news recently as Asus comes out with a contender against the MSI. And, hey, if Thunderbolt's a big deal to you, Go right ahead. Otherwise, you know, it's something to consider against the MSI. I'm less enthusiastic about MSI now that my MSI GS60 <laughs> has taken a big old turd on me. Uh, it's unfortunate it, that that thing died. Um, this does MSI look nice. is kind of a mixed bag for me. Uh, I've seen a lot of MSI gaming laptops in the past that have not fared so well over time, and I've seen some that have worked really well. So MSI as a brand's always been a mixed bag. I've never been in love with all of Asus's gear either. Uh, they make some really good feature-rich motherboards, but what you don't uh, want a motherboard too, with armor all over it and uh, protective <laughs> yeah. gears and stuff on it, man. Yeah, protective from EMI or whatever else uh, non-existent stuff might hurt your board. So, side note on that, I got or I had one of the MSI boards, and it had a or not MSI, um, uh, ASUS boards, and it was one of the Rogue or Rag or you know whatever RG ROG, yeah, yeah ROG gaming. Republic of Gamers. Yeah, there you go, and it had uh, vent fans <laughs> on it, and the vent fans brought the air in through that armor kit and the thing was Mm -hmm. is like i have dogs and the dog hair just like gathered into those (laughs) until it just burned up the components on the motherboard and i didn't think about it because you know when you're cleaning your computer out you're looking at all the regular fans and stuff Mm -hmm. and you're blowing them out and everything and then uh, you know the the board goes out on thermals and i'm like well what the hell's going on i take it out and that whole like trough where it sucked the air in was just filled with dog Mm -hmm. hair is disgusting oh jeez you know, maybe that armor isn't as good a job of protecting. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you know what? If Especially if you're in a hairy environment, uh, filters on your fans are always important. You can pick them up for a couple of bucks on eBay from Cool Masters and everyone else. They make magnetic ones that will stick to your magnetic case and uh, just provide a, a thin kind of grate to have over your fan. And if it collects 90% of the dust or hair, that's dust that doesn't end up in there. You can pull it off because it's magnetic, wash it off real quick, snap it back on, and uh, you don't have to keep opening up your case to make sure that you're not burning up your components. So that's always something to consider, especially if you got your computer on the floor, which you shouldn't. You should Mine always have on the it floor right the carpet. Now. <laughs> I, I actually yeah, you've got an excuse though <laughs> i set mine i went and found a piece of wood and set my computer on the wood just so it was a few inches off of the carpet so it wasn't directly on the carpet but you know what do i yeah. gonna do i don't have any furniture like i makeshift a desk together <laughs> and obviously i can't get anything working because my camera is dead now so there you go uh, moving on <laughs> down the line to sensor technology, uh, Sony has released, or, well, they didn't really release, they applied for a patent and just recently got it for a curved sensor. 
Now, that sounds a little weird, but if you think about what a what a lens itself has to do, they have to bring in light into the glass and then they have to flip the, the image around for the sensor. And then on top of that, they have to curve that image into a flat plane and get it onto the sensor itself. So with those extra mm -hmm. steps, you're, you're going to need more glass, a bigger lens, and the more glass you have, the more light loss you have as the light travels through the lens. Well, if you simply curve the sensor, now you're reducing three or four of the elements that you would normally need in your lens, which means you can make the lens smaller. You can also make the lens with a much uh, larger aperture opening because you don't have as much glass for the light to travel through. So what do you think about this, Devin? I, I noticed you got a, little, a cute little quote <laughs> here at the end. Um, what's this about? Uh, I say that it's a curve that makes sense because uh, I always <laughs> thought uh, curved TVs. Curved TVs were a bit silly. Um, and because, uh, you know, the main reason, you know, they say curved TVs for a cinematic experience and projector screens are curved at theaters uh, because the light is emitting from a lens and they're correcting for the fact that that lens is traveling such a distance. It has corrective elements in it, but eventually you reach a physical limitation of how much you correct the light coming through focus wise, uh, trying to hit a flat surface. So it just becomes cheaper to curve the surface that you're projecting on this. I'm very excited about, um, of course, this is just patents. This is all, you know, speculations. What does it mean practically, but seeing as a curved, uh, sensors, curved outputs and everything else, uh, seem to be coming more and more of the norm, more practical and cost-effective to make. While this means a whole new lens system, it means none of your previous lenses will work and all kinds of uh, disappointing things like that, I'm super excited. I think that you're right. This means smaller cameras. This means smaller, more simple lenses. Um, it's Sony, so it won't mean cheaper lenses, even though it should, since there's less <laughs> uh, elements in the lens body. Uh, but uh, this makes sense. Because rather than all these steps of corrective elements leading into a lens, which you're always going to lose a bit of sharpness, you're going to lose a bit of light, you're going to start getting into chromatic aberrations, um, this it, it, it corrects all those problems. This makes sense from the get-go. Um, you know, if and if there was a way to do it with celluloid, we would have been doing it back when we had celluloid. So it's uh, it's super exciting. And I can't wait to see uh, what kind of technology and things that they can produce and even what this means for video as well and everything else. Because the lens at the end of the day, especially your super wides, that's what I'm thinking of here too, especially your super wides that always have that. Uh, I mean, the wides are always going to have a fisheye, even with a curved lens. But you take in the fact that all your wides tend to have soft edges and chromatic aberrations. Most of the elements in your wide is kind of like okay, let's fix the focus so that it focus on a, on a flat surface. Okay, that creates chromatic aberration. So let's use some uh, lens coatings or other lenses to try to correct for that and, uh, and prisms and stuff like that. And this just makes so much more sense. So I'm very excited to see this kind of stuff come out. And uh, I can't wait uh, to see what Sony does with it. I just hope it won't cost thousands and thousands of dollars just to buy a 50 millimeter lens. Well, the sad thing about this is that if Sony starts putting this, this particular technology into their new full-frame cameras, that makes all of your old lenses obsolete, and you are going Absolutely. to have to go back. <laughs> and then on top of that, now that you have a specialized sensor as opposed to a standard size sensor, that means mm -hmm. adapting any kind of other lens element. You know, in the, in the past, we've grabbed older lenses and so on and attached them to cameras. You're going to be SOL on yes. that factor as well. Uh, 
even if they do come out with this tomorrow, which it is a cool technology, they're going to have to have a very substantial a range of lenses before this becomes practical. So right out of the shoe, you're totally right. If, you're totally right. If they release this tomorrow <laughs> and they release like two kit lenses, no one's. I mean, no one's gonna buy it. No, unless the kit lenses there are the most amazing lenses you've ever seen in your entire life. It's just gonna <laughs> be like, what? Okay, great, good job, guys. Uh, call me back in ten years when you have a <laughs> decent collection of glass to go along with this. So that is one issue, and the other issue is that even though this technology is being patented right now, with all all the the stuff that Sony's already doing. They're probably mm -hmm. not even going to get started on actually putting this into camera bodies anytime in the near term. So, no. you know, first this is you got to wait out. for the technology to come and then you got to actually wait for the lenses to follow along after that. So even if this uh, is hit, hitting in a reasonable time frame from a patent release, which is two to five years, um, maybe mm -hmm. like eight years before this becomes a, a real thing. And then you got to hope that other camera manufacturers will or lens manufacturers will follow suit and create lenses that are designed specifically for a curved sensor so then you need to get like tamron or sigma or any of those other companies well, and that's and that's what i'm hoping for here because you know it, it obviously knowing sony it seems like hey let's make a patent so that we can make a camera that no one else can uh you know swap lenses with so that we can sell only our lenses for that camera for a while because uh, that that kind of sounds like the sony way of doing things but like I said, if the lenses are more simple, they're made out of less elements, uh, I see it then being cheaper and more simple for third-party manufacturers to start making lenses that work with this type of sensor. And you're right. Then you'll have dedicated sensor sizes. You can't put a 35 millimeter on an ASPC size you know, sensor because once it's curved like this, it's only going to work for one sensor. And um, that is going to hurt adoption. Well, but now, hold on a second, though. I don't mean to, like, cut you off, but oh, uh, if you think about the APS-C versus the full frame, uh, the curvature for the sensor itself should be uniform. So if you're going full frame for a lens to a curved is sensor... Yeah, I mean, it's a parabola. Uh, is a parabola I'm the thinking right about it. Yeah, it should. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah so, so it should be uniform. The, the curvature rate for the uh, sensor, whether it's mm -hmm. crop or full frame, should be uniform. So... If you have a unless crop they're sensor, different distances, unless yeah. the flange distance is different. Yeah, I don't know, man. Okay, so yeah, perceivably, I <laughs> what I think, and I'm I'm just right, guessing it here. It seems like yeah. it would be uniform. So if you had a full frame lens, you could use it on a mm -hmm. APS-C size sensor as long as they were both right. curved at the at the same angle of incident. If that's not mm -hmm. the case, then you would run into some issues. But it right. if they made them different, that would be even worse for them. That'd be like shooting themselves in the foot because you would want it to be as compatible as possible with as many things as possible in order to get it to, yes. to gain traction right out of the gate. So my guess would and be I, that I they predict, wouldn't do that. Yeah, and I predict that this is going to kind of be exclusively for mirrorless uh, just because I, I don't see them w putting this into a mirrored uh, camera. Not that they couldn't. They could have a curved mirror that flips up in front of the sensor. Uh, but I just think with the way that Sony has been aggressively pushing into the mirrorless market um, and with the you know, other things that have been going on and they're trying to make smaller lenses and smaller cameras and stuff like that. Uh, I think the first time you see the sensor being used will kind of be in a uh, offshoot of a mirrorless market as opposed to them trying to build up a proper DSLR size market for it. So 
it'll it'll definitely be interesting to see what they come out with. And I, the nerd in me is kind of thinking like, this is the right way to engineer this. This is totally cool. We should all be doing this. Uh, but obviously there's business and other practical reasons on why this will be a hard transition uh, if it actually starts to take off and become popular. Well, and even though Sony is using a sort of a mirror in their A99 series cameras, they call it mm-hmm. SLT. It's really a semi-translucent layer that is only mm-hmm. reflecting some of the light. So they're almost a mirrorless on those cameras as is. The uh, the A7S and the whole A7 line is already mirrorless. The NEX series mm-hmm. is all mirrorless. And those bigger bodies are the only thing that are still holding on from those Minolta patents. So... You know, it wouldn't be inconceivable to see them completely get rid of all sorts of uh, moving parts in front of the sensor itself. No more mirrors, no more SLTs, no no more anything. And now we're <laughs> seeing global shutter show up on a lot of sensors. Um, and, yeah. And Sony's right there with it. So then what do you even need that for? Well, you're not going <laughs> to have to worry about smearing or anything like that. You you can uh, turn on and off every single pixel on the sensor simultaneously. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> that one's a fun one, but uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Moving on to something that is already out there and I'm kind of looking into. Um, I posted this in the show notes just because I was kind of interested in it. I recently uh, shot in a old theater and we were doing um, a lot of lav miking and stuff, but because of the way the, the building was set up and the amount of brick and everything else, we got rather large amounts of reverb on a lot of the talent. And when we're getting to post now, we're realizing that, oh, man, we're going to have to really do something to correct that uh, reflected sound that was being picked up by a lot of the microphones as they were running around on set. And I was looking into Isotope RX4, which is a pretty comprehensive audio repair toolkit uh, for PCs and Macs. Devin, you you put a little note on this here. Did you do you, have you used this before? Yeah, I've actually used this uh several times um tell me the story man i want to know three the rx3 um i did a little bit of reverb uh reverb like you were talking about a little bit of reverb fixing with it i tell you that the software is absolutely just magic uh the algorithms that they've come up with and especially the samples i've heard from the rx4 which is doing things like uh ambience matching and eq matching can make uh, taking two recordings um, from different microphones and making them sound uh, very similar and universal with very little effort put in from you. Uh, it's amazing what the auto setting does if you just say fix it and it, it produces good results, really good results with no knowledge or effort. But if, um, if you explore into audio and you get a little bit of how audio works and uh, you can tweak it, you can get really amazing results that you can't get uh, from the simple tools of dynamics and EQ. Uh, because, like, for reverb correction, uh, usually the only way people tell you to fix that is they're like, ah, you put a gate on it, and you just kind of live with it, and that's kind of what you get. Um, or even in audition, you could kind of start to try to erase on the spectrograph. You could try to erase uh, the reverb characteristics. Uh, this software, I there, some, they must have, like, a million mathematicians to stand on standby figuring out how to uh, recognize a pattern and then recognizing when that pattern is played again and automatically removing just those frequencies because uh, it does some really amazing work. Uh, one way that I saw it used uh, for a slightly bigger production was uh, Sync, which was a small web series. Uh, I don't know if they were Node at the time, I think, but uh, Sam and Nico on YouTube, uh, in their behind the scenes, they showed on Sync how they were in 
uh, an auditorium, not an auditorium, uh, like a welcome desk in okay. a very large corporate uh, corporate building, which had, you know, granite floors and, you know, um, high ceilings and everything else and produced huge reverb. And they showed how using isotope uh, totally cut down on the reverb and made the audio very usable as opposed to before. So super advanced stuff. Uh, I've only had a chance to use the trials the f- few times I've needed to use it because the software is expensive. Uh, the basic price is 350 which isn't so bad. But if you're like me and you want to dig into the more advanced stuff and start hand-tweaking things to absolutely get the best out of a poor recording, uh, it's 1200 for the advanced price that really unlocks it all. Uh, but I'm not going to say that that's pricey because to me it's worth it because I've been in with the software and I've been able to do some amazing things that I would have never been able to do before. Some audio software is just, hey, flip a switch, and it does some kind of magic in the background and makes it sound better. Uh, And that usually the magic it creates in the background is usually stuff you can do with EQ. If you know what you're doing in Dynamics and things like that, you can tweak it anyways. Have you ever messed around with that? That's basically (laughs) what it does. People, Mm -hmm. when they record a band or something like that, they're like, oh, yeah, we used a BBE Sonic Maximizer on this, (laughs) and it's amazing. It just changed my world because it maximized it. And you're like, what? Yeah, maximize my sound. And they have a button that's and, and, like Apocalypse, and you push the Apocalypse button. It's supposed to be the ultimate in maximization. It's just really mm-hmm. heavy compression. Uh, yeah, and all it is is it throws a, a few dynamic limiters on it, and then uh, you know some compression, some multi-band compression. And if you know what you're doing, all the audio software comes with basic tools for all that kind of stuff. Um, and usually, too, uh, to me, I can't hear too much of a difference of a compressor. I know that you can buy compressors that sound like tube compressors and things like that. And a few people really like that kind of stuff. I don't hear too much of a difference, practically speaking. Uh, but I'm not an audiophile either. I don't get paid. I'm not an audio engineer. So that's, you know, maybe there is something to it that I don't get out of it. But this software here actually does things that does not ship with the software you get or that you can't recreate with the software you ship. It actually has active processing to really figure stuff out. So it's just one of those that um, you could try the demos, try it out. If you have some audio that you're trying to fix and you've tried all kinds of stuff, you tried EQing out um, some uh, a loop back and you've tried uh, you know, using a gate to get rid of a reverb or something like that, give the free trial a go and you'll be pleasantly surprised by how easy it is and then if you're more advanced how much control you have at the same time um it's really fantastic and i i don't know if that that gives you the standalone at that price because i'm pretty sure it works as a standalone processor as well as a vst i uh you could correct me on that because it's been a it while it looks like it I is a standalone there's a standalone format and it also comes as a plug-in so you can use it in mm-hmm. either manner uh, 349 uh, gets you the basic version and the advanced version. I'm still digging through the features to determine if I really want to spend mm-hmm. 1200 bucks. This isn't a, <laughs> a high budget product that mm-hmm. I'm working on, but I bet, you know, there's 10 day free trial on this. So I might be able to get everything I need done for this one particular instance uh, for $10 and then maybe talk to the guys about splitting the cost of this in the future. If we, if we find it that valuable it looks really awesome. I've seen a demo for this before, and when I started asking around about reverb removal, this is the mm-hmm. the thing that came up. Everybody basically said you need to go check out Isotope, and, and, that's, <laughs> and that's what to that's do. That's what I would bring up, too. That's what I would bring up, too, because uh, having used it, uh, it speaks for itself, and I haven't, met any, I haven't seen anything else on the market uh, that's been able to have quite the control and the ability that the, this has. When I first started using it, it kind of felt like Warp Stabilizer uh, for Premiere, where... Uh, it's not, it's not perfect. You know, that if you have bad audio, 
uh, you're still going to have bad audio. It's you never get perfection out of it. But uh, if you have that shaky shot, you put warp stabilizer on it and you're like, oh, I can tweak this. Oh, I can use this shot. This was an unusable shot before. Now I can. And Isotope does the same thing for audio. I mean, Audition goes a long way for fixing pops and cracks and all that usual stuff and hum and noise and stuff like that. But the more complicated uh, noise processing like reverb and stuff like that, Audition doesn't come with anything solid for doing it besides the basic tools. Uh, Though the Spectral Editor does have really good at removing specific sounds, um, which if you get into that, it's good for fixing a few things, but if you're trying to batch process, it's absolutely a nightmare to try to manually go through and clean stuff up. Isotope kind of has this middle ground where it's automated and it can do a lot of stuff on its own without you guiding it and process a bunch of audio at once, um, as well as let you go in and individually tweak stuff when you need to. So it's definitely something to think about if you have crappy audio or you're constantly given crappy audio and expected to do magic with it. Yeah, you know, the worst I ever have to deal with normally is a ice machine running in the background or <laughs> something, you know, something like that, that you can kind of like yeah. loop around or whatever, or you can even and you, uh, or noise gate EQ. it. Yeah, EQ, noise gate. Yeah. Um, honestly, for most things, uh, unless you're doing some crazy fixes, uh, Audition does have a lot of tools now where I used to use... Uh, it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, I used it's to gotten, go like, to the past Sony... Three versions. I used to go to the Sony, um, uh, not Vegas. Vegas? Uh, no, uh, Sony. Acid? No, dang it. Man, I'm not. It was after they called it Acid. Yeah. Right? Um, well, the, Sony has a standalone audio editor. Um, they're on version 12 Soundforge? right now. Soundforge, thank you. Uh, yep. and the, Soundforge <laughs> has a lot of really good professional tools, and Audition mm-hmm. used to just be junk. Like when they first came out with Audition, it was crap. You know, it didn't do hardly anything. Uh, It was hard to use. You couldn't figure out how to like, uh, even if you wanted Mm -hmm. to pan or do something simple like that, it was very complicated. But then Adobe bought Cool Edit Pro, which used to be like a free end, free higher end uh, editing suite for podcasters and stuff like that. And when they bought that, they incorporated a lot of their design ideas and effects and everything else into audition and now the noise removal in audition is very good uh the noise mm-hmm. gate is very good uh the uh boosting if you need to really bring up the volume level of some audio that recorded all those features are, are pretty decent but if you start to get into heavy heavy audio editing and you start to really do strong noise reduction and <laughs> stuff like that your audio goes yeah. from sounding nice to sounding like an mp3 that was recorded at uh <laughs> you know 48 bit sampling mm-hmm. rate or something like that you know it's just it, it gets awful pretty fast so mm-hmm. uh be careful on those but audition is still pretty viable it just doesn't do a good job of getting rid of uh reverb now and these days if you've got premiere you've got audition so you owe it to yourself to open it up and try it out even if you haven't done audio in the past uh you owe it to yourself to kind of learn the tools if you're already buying creative cloud it's just to click away so yeah, and uh, one other thing for those of you who use uh, the the cloud service from Adobe, uh, right-click in Premiere, and it'll bring up the <laughs> menu right there that says Send to Audition, and you can send it. It'll open up right in Audition. As soon as you save an Audition, it'll go right back into your timeline again, and it's almost a seamless, painless process. And It's, the it's same... just like working with After Effects, yep, which exactly. a lot of people are used to that After Effects workflow, but they've got the same thing. You can even... I believe you can import entire sequences too. I'm, yeah, you I'm can. pretty sure I've done that before. Uh, you can also do uh, outputs to OMPL or some format like that, and that'll open up an audition. And Premiere will even render a video proxy, so you could see a little video window as you're editing audio if you're doing full. Oh, I haven't and all tried that, kind that. Of stuff too. That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, they, 
they've got bigger workflow stuff between the two of them. I think they haven't decided exactly how they want the two to work together, so they threw all the options at it. Uh, but I've seen online some workflows where you tell Premiere, I want to do an audio export, which is meant for like, uh, if you're doing Pro Tools or something like that, okay. and it'll render out video as well. But I've heard people re-importing that into Audition to get uh, greater control. So, Huh. I'll have to check that out. Um, normally, my workflow for Audition is uh, export to Audition, uh, listen to the audio, clean it up, do a noise sample if I want, and capture the noise, uh, apply the mm-hmm. noise reduction, and then drop it back in the timeline again. Um, one other thing to think about, and a lot of people don't know this exists, is there's actually a noise gate built into Premiere. So if you have a constant hum in the background and you have captured that as a sample to put as your sound bed underneath your talking parts, you can basically use a noise gate on any of the speaking parts to get rid of the noise in between so you're not doubling up on the noise when there's Mm -hmm. silence. Uh, The noise gate is hidden underneath of the audio effects tab in Dynamics. So if you're looking for that, that's where it's at. Um, They don't call it a noise gate. They call it something else, but uh, it's hidden in there. It's it's under your dynamic tools, which is where your compressor, your expander, and your limiter, and your noise gate is. Because those all fall under dynamic i'm so used to searching for noise gate when i'm using like sonar or something like that that when i was first like well where's the where's the freaking noise gate at it? i couldn't <laughs> find it anywhere so uh just mm-hmm. something to think about there uh moving on down the line to the discussion topics uh again sorry my video is completely toast here <laughs> i don't know maybe this logitech uh no love from 930 e is just killing me um, Sony has released <laughs> new firmware for the FS7, and uh, this includes uh, Kodak support and internal recording for Apple ProRes. Uh, it also gives you a complete 4096 by 2160 XAVC interframe recording options at 60 frames per second. Uh, they've also added a few button and control features, as well as color temperature features and so on. I only rent the FS7. I do not own the <laughs> FS7, so this is not something exciting for me. Um, from what I understand, though, well, ProRes. Yeah, I mean, are you really excited I'm about tired ProRes? Of ProRes? Like, is ProRes really <laughs> that important to a lot of people anymore? It, uh, well, I still I prefer DNX HD, uh, but lately uh, at the studio we've been using uh, Blackmagic shuttles for all of our recording. Okay, and while they support uncompressed 10-bit. Um, that's obnoxious to try to work with all those files and get SSDs big enough to capture all that footage, um, as well as the HyperDeck and everything else. Uh, just because we're working in Premiere and stuff like that, uh, I still prefer DNX HD, but ProRes is kind of this universally compatible, and it's the easiest to get stuff working with. And so it's one of those that if you need some of the features and some of the workhorse abilities of the FS7, uh, but you don't really want to work with um, a more crunchy codec like an AVC. It's one of those that, like, if space isn't an issue, but a processor is, so you're on a laptop or something uh, like yeah, that, not in your a- case, obviously. AVC is pretty hard on your processor as yeah. far as editing goes, but it's very well compressed, so it doesn't take up a lot of space. Yeah, it looks great. It, it's a proper, like, acquisition for recording lots of, you know, detail at a very small price. Uh, but ProRes is one of those that if, like, getting it from the camera to wherever you're broadcasting is your problem and there's editing in between, uh, ProRes will fly through that workflow where AVC, you'll definitely have some problems if you're doing some renders on top of it. So uh, I'm just I'm excited to hear about the Magenta cast. Uh, that definitely should have been done in the first, you, you know, release of the firmware. Um, 
Yeah, but there's as still well as, uh, other, some other firmware stuff. issues that haven't been addressed yet. Um, the uh, K-Balance settings will automatically jump back to 3,000 when you change some of the other parameters. And the shutter speed is jumping up to like 300 when people are changing certain parameters. And if you don't notice it, your, sh your shutter's at uh, uh, 300 <laughs> degrees and then you have to like go correct it. You know, it's, it's just That's weird stuff really, like that yeah. where you're thinking like, man, this is supposed to be a full-fledged professional camera. And they're just now yep. getting to fixing some of these like very basic, simple problems. As for Apple ProRes, you know, Avid mm -hmm. was really smart when they uh, basically allowed everybody to use their Kodak. So uh, DNX HD, I prefer it personally. Um, when yeah. I'm using I my uh, Ninja, I record in that format. And I, I don't really, I guess maybe because I'm not a Mac user, I, it's never really been a, a thing. ProRes has never been something I've been like, oh man, if only I could get these in ProRes, things would be different. Things could change. <laughs> but no, it was like, well, whatever, just get a bigger computer and throw it at it and then you're good to go. But you're right. The laptop mm -hmm. thing is a, an important aspect to think about. If you're running on a dual core or an old quad core, uh, ProRes is mm -hmm. way easier to handle as far as editing yeah. goes, as Especially long as you have the hard drive something space. like 60 frames. Yeah, if you're exactly. doing something like 60 frames too, uh, ProRes makes all the difference. And a part of the reason why right now the studio is at ProRes instead of DNX is because when the shuttle records DNX, uh, it splits uh, the audio and video. That's how Blackmagic decided to incorporate the DNX. That's There's weird. actually a, a video DNX feed, and then there's a left and right audio feeds that are also two separate files. Uh, so that makes things a little annoying for our editor to patch all that stuff together when he wants to patch it together. And then uh, Premiere doesn't have those export settings. So when we want to put footage back in the shuttle and do a playback off of that shuttle into our switcher, um, Premiere, as far as I found, does not have settings to, I want to render DNX HD and have it split into each stream, video and two audio streams. So then the Blackmagic shuttle basically is a very simple device, so it won't play anything that isn't perfectly set up the way that it wants to receive the footage. So it's one of those where ProRes, on the other hand, after you get all the frame rates and resolutions the same, it'll play and it'll record and everything will be uh, easy going. So it's one of those that, you know, DNX is still kind of a complicated codec and people use it in different ways where ProRes is only kind of treated as one uh, container, one file type, and that makes things a bit easier for people. But like you said, I do all my stuff in DNX at home. So that's how I prefer to do it. And that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I had to mess around with something like that a while back where I needed to do playback on something that was using DNX HD. And I thought there was a way to export it where you export in four channel format. And so mm, okay. then when you export in four-channel format, for, for whatever reason, and you'll see this if you use uh, the Ninja or the Shogun, if you record in DNX HD, you can record in either uh, stereo or you can record in four or six channels. And when it does that, it wraps two of the channels into the video stream, and then it exports the rest of the channels separately. And I believe hmm. with the Kodak installed on your PC, you can set up uh, your output to, to, to stream out in the four-channel format so that you get the two channels of audio on those second layers. I, I, I'll have to dig mm -hmm. around with it. Now you got me wondering how I did that <laughs> last time. But that is something that I, I believe is out there. Uh, as for playing on the Blackmagic cameras, though, or the shuttle, for example, I, I don't know. I haven't played around with that, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, but, but it's another story. It's another story of a camera that gets released uh, before the software is done, just like the Canon 5DS being available to pre-order 
uh, like have people not learned we pre-ordered the black magic and what happened there i don't understand pre-orders i like the camera to get used around a bit and for people to really understand the limitations and what it works for uh before people get too involved with it uh but canon of course is just seeing this as an instant hey we can convert uh you know uh, this into money we can hey we can see how many people so we know how to produce our production line and everything else i understand the reason for it i'm just frustrated by it because i keep feeling like uh not just with like the video game industry uh but with camera hardware and the hardware industry releasing things before they're done and it's even worse when you get into kickstarter and things like that even half-baked ideas that are half done when they get delivered and it's like oh we'll update it later um I'm a little frustrated with that's how the way things are going, but it seems like that's the way things will keep going, especially when big brands like Sony and Canon uh, do it so often. Uh, but what do you think about the uh, 5DS being available to pre-order this week? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't really need 50 megapixels in my camera. I'm not super excited <laughs> about the 5DS. I was a little bit harder on it until I started looking into some of the specs. Uh, finally, Canon has included an intervalometer in this camera mm -hmm. and some other basic photo features that will make it a little bit handier for studio photography. Uh, 50 megapixels is, is something that's uh, useful for somebody. I mean, uh, we've had yeah. this discussion multiple times about large Too megapixel. Yeah, it's a thing. Somebody wants it. There's enough people that want it that obviously when they did their market studies, you know, it made sense to release this camera. So yep. it's coming. You're going to get it. Uh, if you don't want to get it now or you want something earlier before this is on for pre-order and release towards the end of third quarter, uh, you can still go the Nikon route and get 42 or uh, is it 42 or 48 megapixels out of the D800. D800? I thought it was 42. It might be 42, but uh, that's already pretty high up on the megapixel count. So that it's might be too the... too many. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how many pixels do you really need, folks? Uh, somebody needs them, though, not me. Um, one other thing, and I was going to show this off in video format, but it's not going to happen now. <laughs> um, I am currently holding the 40 to 150 millimeter uh, f2.8 Olympus lens for micro four-thirds cameras, and attached to it, gently caressing the bottom, <laughs> is the 1.4x teleconverter. This thing is pretty freaking sweet. Um, holding it in my hand, it's about the size of my Tamron 24 to 70 VC. So I was kind of concerned that this would be a ginormous lens. It's not. And it is great to be able to take pictures of my dog's eyeball from, you know, 15 feet away with this thing. I will definitely be using this. Yeah, what for... are you doing with all that zoom? What I don't... are you taking pictures of? You need all of that. You know, uh, because... Oh, with your converter, it's a 210, and then aren't you running, is that on a GH4? or? Yeah, it's a GH4, so it's 2X. So, so it's 420. Yeah. yeah, 420 to 210 with the 1.4. So it's really pretty amazing what you can do with this. <laughs> the issue I'm running into right now is since there's no IS on the lens and there's no IS uh, on the GH4 body, when you start to get fully extended, even though you have mm -hmm. really high shutter speeds in good daylight, you are trying to hold your hands as still as possible to even compose an image at that much zoom. So that may be another excuse for me to pick up the OEM 5 Mark II <laughs> to stabilize this monster lens. But uh, 
I'll have some more posts on this eventually, um, and I'll probably show it off on one of the other casts once video is working again. Thanks, Logitech, you jerk. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's pretty cool. Uh, I did get a really good deal on this, and keep an eye out. Uh, Olympus right now is offering a refurbished version of this on their site for uh, $1,200 or $1,199, basically. Which is really good because yeah, the brand new price is 1500 Fifteen, Yeah, so it's come down $300. And when that happened, it drove the used prices on eBay down even further. And so I was able to get this entire setup with the teleconverter and everything for $1,300, whereas I believe that the 1.4X teleconverter is like uh, $300 by itself. So... It ended up being a really decent bargain for the price. Still expensive, but by no means out of out of my budget. And when I saw that, I was like, buy it now. Done. Come to my house. Now, this is actually the last item that will be shipped to my address before I change addresses. So, Yeah. Sorry, man. I didn't mean to cut you Excellent. off. What were you going to say? No, 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 no. That's that's quite all right. I was looking on eBay right now, trying to find some used prices. Uh, and you're right. It's definitely dropped the price on them. Uh, you know, right now there's uh, two of them, and one of them starting at twelve hundred. Oh, nice. So, which which is about the same price as that refurb that you said, and people probably prefer that. But still, uh, something to keep your eye out for because I'm sure more and more of them are going to pop onto the market. Unless everyone's buying a uh, Mark II's, then everyone would be buying them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, uh, this is because it is a great lens. Yeah, this is a really sexy lens. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it so far. I need to find a sporting event or some other excuse to really get this out and uh, put it through <laughs> its paces. So that'll probably be on my list of things to do once I get settled into my new place. Let me see. What mm-hmm. else do we have on here? Um, I'm moving. If Your I haven't told week. you. Yeah, you're moving. Yeah, my pick of Vancouver. the week is moving companies. Let me tell you, if uh, <laughs> you ever have to move yourself, it sucks. But if you can afford it, a moving company comes in with a semi-truck and packs every single thing you own into a box and shoves it in a semi and it goes into some kind of robotically controlled warehouse. And then when your <laughs> ticket comes up, it comes back out again and goes to your new home. So that is mm-hmm. pretty nice. I'm glad I don't have to move all of the studio myself. You found a moving company that would go all the way to Vancouver for you? Uh, yeah. So Van Lines actually does full uh, country coverage. So, And by the way, guys, it's not Vancouver in Canada. It's Vancouver, Washington, which is right next to Portland. So a few of you have been emailing me asking me why I'm leaving the United States and going to Canada. That is not the case. I'm, I'm still going to be in America. No problems there. But yeah, the he just van, likes it up north. Yeah, it, the weather's going to be nicer. Right now, where I'm at, the wind is currently blowing at 65 miles an hour outside. And it is miserable. <laughs> so I am glad to not have to worry about that anymore. But uh, Van Lines was the company that's moving me, uh, but also Mayflower does enter uh, all the way across the United States. Uh, it's fairly spendy, though, guys. So uh, I think to move the entire studio, it's going to set me back about four grand by the time I'm done. So just <laughs> keep that in mind. Um, it is not for the faint of heart to pay for your move. <laughs> but on the bright note, I don't have to chuck all my stuff out into the street and hope that I can fit it into three U-Haul trips back and forth. So right. I suppose it depends on how much suffering you're willing to How endure. far is that drive? Uh, it's going to be 24 <laughs> hours straight. Jeez. I think it's uh, yeah. 14 or 1,500 miles. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck. And I still have to drive my vehicles there because it was going to be another two or three grand to have my vehicles moved. And that, 
that's out of the question. So, um, <laughs> uh, basically, when you watch the beginning of the video, if you saw the pile of stuff behind me, that's my last bit of ownership. About four camera bags, a couple of uh, longer gear bags for uh, lights and light stands and stuff, and then a Tupperware container full of all of my clothing. Uh, right now, I'm sleeping on the floor because my stuff moved earlier than me. And uh, <laughs> so my dogs are actually getting anxious and running around the house because there's no furniture in the house right now. So <laughs> it's kind of weird. But on that note, enough about my depressingness. Where can people <laughs> find you, Devin? Uh, they can find me at impulsenetworks.tv uh, where I'll be posting um, a few tutorials. Lately, I've been testing out um, different video uh, services for people to comment on your edits and for you to get feedback and also communicate with them. Uh, so I'm going to do a big article uh, talking about all four of them, all four of the major players there, and uh, which one I think works for me. And for me, guys, uh, when the video is not working, you can find me on iTunes. You can <laughs> find me on Twitter. We always respond to questions on Twitter, so feel free to send us those there. Uh, right now, I am in a little bit of flux, so DSLRFilmNoop.com might not be updated as regularly as normal, but that should change in about a week when I find a home to live in. For now, <laughs> thanks for listening to DSLR Film Noop Podcast, and we will see you on the next show. Show.